0: Our fathers, we bow before you this morning. We great praise and great thanksgiving, acknowledging that you are an incredibly awesome God. That before the mountains were brought forth or ever the earth was formed, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And you're our God and our Father. And we worship you today, we pray in spirit as well as in truth. We worship you that you have created us, that we might know you and serve you. You have redeemed us by the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ so that we're able to stand perfectly whole and complete in him before your throne. We praise you for an impeccable righteousness, a righteousness that will stand the very scrutiny of the courts of heaven throughout eternity. We praise you for the gift of eternal life. We praise you for the gift of the indwelling spirit of the living God, by whom we've been made new creations in Christ, by whom we've been baptized into the body of Christ, and through whom we've been empowered to bear witness of this glorious gospel Throughout the world. And Father, as we come before you as your people today, we confess and recognize that we continue to fall short of your glory, that we do so in thought, word, and deed, that we fail to love you with our whole heart, that we fail to love others as we love ourselves. And yet we're grateful that you've not dealt with us as our sins deserve because of the full, sufficient, redeeming, atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So rich, so great is his work. That our sins, though they are scarlet, they've been made white as snow. So great is his saving work on our behalf that our sins have been removed as far as the east is from the west. They've been dropped into the sea. They've been blotted out as with a thick cloud. So we come today as your forgiven and redeemed people to offer unto you the sacrifice of our praise and our thanksgiving. We pray today for our pastor, Dr. Young, as he's gone on to India. And we pray, Father, that he would go in the fullness of your blessing. We pray that that you would sustain him and Jim and Ben Clark, that you would uphold them moment by moment, that you would preserve them physically in health, that you would empower them daily by a fresh outpouring of your spirit that through them. The ministry of the gospel would be communicated to some 150 Indian pastors and that a country that has been marred by great darkness would experience an outpouring of your Holy Spirit as these men go into the cities and the villages and communicate the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Undoubtedly, there are many needs in our midst today, and your eyes are upon us, and your ears are open unto our cry, and we come boldly to your throne of grace to cast our concerns before you and pray that you would work in the varied circumstances of our lives to deepen your work of grace, to deepen the impress, the imprint Of Christ's character upon our nature we pray that in our confusion we might experience your wisdom that in our illness and infirmity we might experience your healing power and that all things would be done to the praise of the glory of your grace as we give today father we recognize that you've abundantly given to us in Christ in fact the Apostle Paul says that we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ so accept our gifts today we give them gladly and joyfully Pray that you would use them and set them apart to advance the cause of your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Galatians chapter 4. Uh, we're going to be in verses uh, 1 through 7. Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. This is perhaps the first epistle written by Paul. There's some uh, argument about that, but certainly it's one of the early epistles. If you know anything about the context of this book... It comes out of Paul's first missionary church planting venture in Acts chapter 13 and 14. He planted a series of churches in this area called Galatia. After he left, there were certain teachers who came in and began to endeavor to add something else to the gospel. They were saying that it's Christ plus something else that leads to salvation. So the gospel is on the line in the book and uh, the theme of the book is the gospel of grace it's about the freedom and liberty that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. We come to the fourth chapter in the first verse and if you'll follow with me we'll go through verses um, 1 through 7. Now I say that the heir as long as he is a child is not different at all from a slave though he is master of all but is under guardians and stewards appointed until the, until the time appointed by his or by the father excuse me even so we when we were children were in bondage under the elements of the world but when the fullness of the time had come god sent forth his son born of a woman born under the law to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons and because you are sons god has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts crying out abba father Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Gary, Claire and Steve Barben look like brothers. They almost speak like brothers because they have the same voice inflection. They finish one another's sentences and mutual friends declare that they bear a striking re- resemblance to one another. Um, in fact, uh, Barbin was even Claire's best man at his wedding. They met under rather serendipitous circumstances in a restaurant, developed a firm and fast friendship that mature over the years. Uh, One supported the other in the loss of a father and other family crises. And they were just great, great friends. On December the 30th in 1999, the depth of their friendship became clear when a DCF um Case worker, This is in Connecticut, Fairfield, Connecticut, called Gary Barbin and began to ask him some rather personal and penetrating questions about his background, about his family and about the issue of adoption. Well, as it turns out, uh, he thought that he was uh, for 51 years, the biological son of Benjamin and Marjorie Clare. But as it turns out, he was, in fact, adopted. And Steve Barbin was his biological brother. Thus, the depth of their friendship was explained. They were not just friends. They were family. They were not just buddies. They were brothers. And even more remarkable than that, they had 11 other siblings, family members that they knew nothing about. The New Testament gives us two measurements of God's love for us. One of those measurements is the cross of Christ, uh, writing in First John, the, the uh, fourth chapter The Apostle John says, in this is the love of God, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave his son to be the propitiation. That is the the expiation, the covering, the atonement for our sin. That's one yardstick is the cross of Christ. How much does God love us? Look at the cross. But the second yardstick of God's love, the second measurement by which we know how much we are loved by the father is found in this passage before us this morning. And for just a few brief moments, I'd like for us to look at that. The second measurement is, in fact, the issue of adoption. When God pardons us, when he forgives us, when he receives us, he places us into his family. That's uh, the opening prologue of John's gospel, the first chapter, the 12th verse. It says that as many as would receive him to them, he gave the authority to become the children of God. Even to those who believe in his name. And we were born not of the will of man, not of the will of flesh, but we were born of God. And later when John would write his first epistle, he would say, what manner of love, almost as an exclamation. What manner of love is this that the father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of the living God? Adoption, then, at least in this gospel sense, this spiritual sense is God's gracious gift. It's such a gracious gift that a miraculously pardoned offender, those who had once hated God, whose hearts were stone, whose minds were blinded by the God of this world, has not only been pardoned, but has been treated, honored, received into the family as a well-beloved son or daughter. We become, by adoption, God's very own children. It's an incredibly rich gospel treasure to think that the God of heaven and earth, the maker of the ends of the earth, has adopted us into his family and is assuming every responsibility for our welfare both in time as well as in eternity. Well, the gospel blessing of adoption is summarized and placed before our view this morning in four key words. And that first key word would be the word of acceptance. Adoption grants us full acceptance before the God of heaven. We are adopted into his family and we are received as well beloved sons and daughters of the living God. And he accepts us on the basis of grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. If you look at chapter three for just a minute. At verse 26, the means of our coming into the family of God, the means of our being adopted into the family of God is stated very succinctly, yet very clearly in Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. Paul says, we're all sons of God through faith in whom? Through faith in Jesus Christ. The means of our coming into God's family and being accepted by him is grace through faith in Christ alone. We're sons and daughters the moment that we believe the moment that we receive Christ and rest upon him alone for righteousness, the Bible says that we become God's very own children. This this is a glorious truth. It's a incredible truth. More education will not increase your status before the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. More good deeds, more earnest effort, more grand accomplishments, more money, more power, working harder, striving to do better. Will not make you more acceptable before God. In fact, Paul, when he wrote the church at Ephesus in his uh, first chapter, Ephesians 1, says that we are made accepted. We are made accepted, Ephesians 1, 6. We're made accepted in the beloved. The moment we trust and receive and rest on Christ, we're accepted by God. Acceptance is a beautiful word. Especially. If you've ever experienced the devastating pain of rejection on any level. In the whisper test, Marianne Byrd writes about growing up different because of a facial deformity. This facial deformity, this disfigurement locked her in an emotional and relational prison. When she started school, her classmates mercilessly, daily, teased her about her disfigurement. And when they would ask, what happened to your face? She would say that it happened in an accident because she believed that somehow this being an accident, as opposed to a birth defect, made her more lovable and more acceptable. When she was in the early elementary years, she longed to be accepted. She longed for friendship. And she was going to believe that no one outside of her immediate family would ever really love her and accept her. At that point in time, they gave children, and they may still do this, it's been quite some time since I was in the second and third grade, although I spent some of the best years of my life in the third grade. Um, But um, they gave an annual hearing test, and the student would stand at the door and cup one ear, and the teacher seated at the desk would whisper, and the child would have to repeat what the teacher whispered. And uh, she had a teacher in the second or third grade by the name of Mrs. Leonard, a bubbly lady, short and round and loving and effervescent in personality. And Mary Ann Bird loved Mrs. Leonard. And so the day came for Mary Ann to stand at the door and she expected the, the repeated words. The sky is blue. Uh, what color your eyes uh, or what's written on the chalkboard? But it is as if God dropped into Mrs. Leonard's heart seven words that liberated Mary Ann Bird from a prison of rejection and loneliness. And the seven words were this. Mrs. Leonard whispered this. I wish you were my daughter. I wish you were my daughter. And Mary Ann Byrd writes in the whisper test, it's as if my heart was loosed. It was as if I had become freed. I'm telling you today that the gospel truth in Galatians chapter 4 is that the creator of the ends of the earth, the one true and living God, whispers resoundingly to you and to me in the gospel not, I wish you were my son or my daughter, but you are my son and my daughter, and you are by grace alone. I love this passage in Isaiah chapter 43, the opening verses, where the Lord says of His Old Testament people, Israel, that I have redeemed you, I've called you by name, and when you walk through the waters, they'll not overflow you, and when you pass through the fire, you'll not be consumed by the flame, because you're mine. And in the gospel of grace, this God says to all of us who believed and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, I have accepted you despite sin's defilement and sin's deformity. I have adopted you into my family and I accept you because I've called you by my name. The opening verses of Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2 underline this acceptance. The Bible teaches that there's an underlying unity in the way we are accepted by God in the way that we're saved, forgiven, and received and pardoned. There are not two ways of salvation, one in the Old Testament and one in the New. We're not saved by law-keeping in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament saved by grace. It's always been by grace through faith in a Redeemer. In the Old Testament, they looked forward to this coming Redeemer who was promised in every sacrifice. who was promised in every priestly offering. who was promised in every day of atonement observance. Who was promised in every Passover, and in the New Testament, those shadows become light in Christ, and those tokens of coming grace come to fulfillment, and all of those promises become yes and amen in Christ in the New Testament. And Paul is saying in these opening verses that this this whole um, idea of being under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. Is just his way of saying that the fullness of God's grace and the fullness of God's redeeming and atoning work promised so often in the Old Testament has come to light in fulfillment in Christ. In the opening chapter of Corinthians uh, chapter one, the first letter, Paul says that it is of God that we're in Christ and he's become for us our wisdom. Our righteousness, our sanctification and our redemption. You and I are so accepted by the father because of Christ that we have all the freedoms, privileges and resources of full grown sons and daughters. We have all that the term adoption implies in the grace of adoption. God has put his name upon us. In the grace of adoption, you and I have full access to the throne of grace. That's what Hebrews 4 says. We have a standing invitation to come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain grace and mercy in our time of need. Some of you may recall when John Kennedy was in office, there was a picture of John Jr., who in those younger years was called John John, was in the Oval Office, and President Kennedy was surrounded by members of his cabinet. And there playing under the desk was little John John. He was not barred from entrance to the most powerful man, arguably the most powerful man in America, the man who occupied the highest elected office. There was John John in his father's presence, surrounded by the movers and shakers. But this little boy had an audience with the president. You and I have an audience, an invitation to always come into our Father's presence because you and I have been made accepted in the beloved. We've been made right with God and we are his received sons and daughters. So accepted that God says to us in the gospel, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. So accepted in the gospel that Christ says in his prayer in John 17 that God loves us as though we were Christ himself. Rich gospel treasure, acceptance. But secondly, adoption grants us real spiritual freedom. That's the point of verses 3, 4, and 5. We're free because of Christ's redemption. In verse 3, we were in bondage, past tense, under the elements of the world. But God sent his son in verses 4 and 5 to redeem us. We're free from spiritual bondage. This word elements, stoichia in the original text, could mean one of two things. Elements could refer to fallen spiritual beings headed by an incorrigible, malevolent adversary headed by the deceiver, the devil, the serpent of old, the God of this world, the prince of the power of the air, whatever name you want to use. It could refer to this hierarchy of spiritual evil that you and I wrestle with these unseen hosts with which we're engaged in a grappling match, spiritually speaking or the word elements could refer to false ideologies, false philosophies, false gospels and religions that blind and deceive, which Paul talks about in Colossians 2. We don't war against flesh and blood, although sometimes it feels that way. But Paul says in his second letter to the church at Corinth in chapter 10 that though we walk in the flesh, we don't war after the flesh. Our weapons are not carnal. That is, they're not fleshly. But they're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Or I think the New American Standard Bible calls these strongholds, these fortresses. It's, it's a false way of thinking. It's a false gospel. It's a false system of religion and acceptance by works. And what Paul is saying in Galatians 4, verse 3, is that we were in bondage to this at one time. But we've been liberated. We've been freed by the redeeming work of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is so wonderfully illustrated in the Gospels. You may recall in Mark chapter 5, Jesus encounters a man who was so demonically bound that he could not be chained. He could not remain clothed and he cut himself with stones and lived among the tombs and day and night groaned in his misery. But one day this man encounters the power of our great Savior And Jesus says to the man, what is your name? And the man growls back, my name is Legion, for we're many. And Christ set him free by the power of his word. I don't know the circumstances of your life today. I don't know what your past is. But I can tell you this on the basis of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is a liberator. That he liberates us from the grinding guilt of sins past so that they're covered, so that they're blotted out. I know that he liberates us from hierarchies of evil. I know that he liberates us from false systems of belief and false religions and ideologies. A man who was involved in a cult called the Jehovah's Witness for over 30 years. The light of the gospel came to him. He was convicted of his sins. He came to believe that the truth is found in Jesus and in Jesus alone. And he wrote a book about it. And he says that one night he was driven to his knees and his eyes began to pour tears of repentance as he humbled himself before, before the Lord, and he cried out that he would be free, that his mind would be free. And he says, as the sun kissed the dawn of the morning, I stood to my knees as a freed and liberated man. The chains of darkness fell off. And that's what Paul is saying here, that you and I, as a result of being brought into the family of God, we are liberated with a real, and given a real spiritual freedom. We're free from sin's bondage as well. Jesus in John chapter 8 says that whoever sins is the slave of sin and the depth and degree of our bondage and sin is defined in Ephesians 2. We were dead in sins. We walked according to the course of this world. We were dominated by our sensual fallen affections and desires. We were by nature objects of wrath we were dominated by the prince of the power of the air we were utterly helpless to deliver ourselves we needed a deliverer and may god's name be praised throughout eternity he sent us one he sent us a champion who set our hearts and our minds free the lord jesus christ has released us from the penalty and power of sin by the power of his redeeming work we're free from legalism, from the driving fear of trying to be good enough to make ourselves acceptable and loved by God. This word in Galatians 4, redeem, is such a picturesque word. Its meaning is in the context of Paul's letter meant to buy or purchase out of the marketplace one who was a slave. It's used in the New Testament often for the price paid to purchase and set a, uh, set a slave free. Redeemed describes the nature, the effect, the power of Christ's work on our behalf. Galatians 2.20, if you just glance there at the end of that, this text says that the Son of God loved us and He gave Himself for us. Galatians 3.13, if you just glance there very quickly, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. That is, He bore all the penalties of sin's curse. And then here in Galatians 4 and 5, God sent his son to redeem those under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. And then Galatians 5 1, which I think is the theme of this great letter. Stand fast, stand firm in the liberty, in the freedom with which Christ has made you free. Stand firm in that freedom. You and I have been given incredible freedoms, gospel freedoms. Because of the redeeming work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Some years ago, Barbara Vogel's fifth grade class in Aurora, Colorado, had finished a section on American history in which uh, the, the grim details of slavery were recounted over several days' lessons. They discovered a newspaper article describing the modern plight of slaves in Sudan They were so moved as they read the account that some said, we've got to do something about this. And so they started collecting change uh, change in jars to purchase the freedom of what they hoped would be one or two Sudanese slaves. Soon the news spread in the local papers across Colorado, across the West, and even received some prominence in the national news. And money came pouring in. Cash, change, checks, A year later, a $50,000 check from this fifth grade class in Aurora, Colorado, was sent to Christian Solidarity International to purchase the freedom of 1,050 Sudanese boys and girls. And we marvel at that. But listen, the Bible has said that you and I have been redeemed not by corruptible things like silver and gold. We've been redeemed by the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've been liberated from sin's grinding bondage. We've been liberated from fear of a judgment to come. There is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ because of Christ's redeeming work for us. His sinless hands were pierced, not for our sins, or not for his sins, rather, but for ours. His back would be given fully to the lash of the scourge, not for his sins, but for ours. His brow would be crowned and pierced, not by a royal diadem, but by a crown of thorns, a symbol of the curse that he bore on our behalf. And you and I today are redeemed sons and daughters of the living God because of the power of Christ's redeeming work. Beloved, there is a fount filled with Emmanuel's blood and sinners who are still plunged beneath that cleansing flood lose all their guilty stains. If the son makes you free, Jesus says in John 8, you're free indeed. We not only have acceptance and spiritual freedom, but verse 6 quickly says that we've been granted family intimacy as a result of being adopted into the father's family. Verse 6 says a leading feature of our adoption is the intimacy that God grants by giving us the spirit of his son. For a number of years, uh, Melinda and I and our kids lived outside of Memphis. Many if not, not all of you are fully aware of that at this point in time. But, but we would come back. Um, we would come back home to visit at Christmas and so on. And and one of the things that I enjoyed coming home, quite frankly, because from our driveway to my mother's driveway in Bartlett was uh, almost a thousand miles. MapQuest said it was 978 miles, and we've driven that many a way, uh, many a time, all the way. And uh, I call it the Widowmaker trip. Um, and um, we finally learned that if we gave our kids two tablespoons of Benadryl, we could make that trip a lot better. So we'd give them two and we'd take one. Um, but uh, I'd come in this long trip and to go in the house, I'd hug my mother, I'd hug my father, and then I'd fling open the cabinets in the kitchen, and I'd look to see what was to eat, and I'd get out the fig Newtons, I'd get out the crackers and the peanut butter. I'd fling open the refrigerator. I'd pull out a diet soda. Now, if I come to your house, I'm not going to do that. Unless I have to. (laughs) uh, Unless it comes to that. Um, But I'd open drawers. The mail would be there. I'd flip through the mail. Because I was a son, I could just come into the house just like I live there. Although I'd left a long time ago. See, the point of what Paul is saying here is that you and I have family intimacy, and that intimacy is confirmed because of the cry that the Spirit of the Son, the Spirit of Christ, makes through our redeemed lips, and that cry is, Abba, Father. The Spirit is the pledge, the guarantee that we belong to God, and it's the Spirit who enables us to address Him as Father, to call upon God The creator, the sustainer, the redeemer, as our father. And he comes to us. The Holy Spirit comes to us as the spirit of adoption. And his abiding aim, listen, his abiding aim is to deepen the family relationship with the father. He aims to reproduce in us a reflection of Jesus' own intimate relationship with the father. So God gives the spirit of his son to make that an increasing reality in our lives. It's the Spirit who cries through us, Abba, Father. Abba is the language of familiarity. It's the language of family. I had a family name by which I called my father. I did not call him father. I won't tell you what that family name is, but you all have family names. My dad used to say, son, you can call me anything, just never call me old man. And I had a pet name by which I called him. And the point of Abba here is it's the language of family. It's not baby talk. It's not gibberish. It's mentioned three times in the New Testament. Once in Mark 14, verse, uh, I think, 34, doesn't matter, but Mark chapter 14, it's placed on the lips of Jesus when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, being crushed by Calvary's looming large on the horizon. And he says, Abba, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. Two other times it's used in the New Testament and it's placed on your lips and your lips and your lips and your lips and and my lips. It comes as a cry of family intimacy as you and I are enabled by the Holy Spirit to cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit impels us to act like children. The Spirit moves us to address, to look up, to lean on and trust In God as our Heavenly Father, the one who's always faithful in love and care, who's always wise in correction and discipline, the one who's always generous in resource and blessing, to cry out, Abba, Father, to the one who's always purposeful in guidance. And it's this same Spirit who impels us to act like His children, to bear the family likeness of Christ, to further the family interests of the kingdom To pursue the family honor of glorifying our Father in heaven. It's because of this intimacy that you and I are able to approach God today in worship and adoration. And we're able to come before him with our petitions and our requests and our needs. It's the very heart of the gospel message. That you and I, because we've been adopted into God's family, have acceptance. Real acceptance. With the only one whose opinion ultimately matters. You and I have a real spiritual freedom. We're no longer enslaved to sin. We're no longer fearful of a coming judgment. And you and I have a family intimacy by which we're able to lift our heads and our hearts and our voices, if not indeed our hands toward heaven, and say, Abba, Father. And that's not all. Finally, the text in verse 7 says that adoption gives a real lasting security. The latter part of verse 7, Paul says, if a son... If you are a son, or by application, if you're a daughter, then you're an heir of God through Christ. Adoption in the culture of that day was irrevocable. Once a son, always a son. Once a daughter, always a daughter. Bob Peterson, a gentleman that I know a pastor, in fact, a Presbyterian Church of America pastor, bounced around in the foster system in Oklahoma, pastored a church about 30, 40 miles south of us in Fort Myers, and he was bouncing around this foster system in which he suffered incredible cruelty and hardship. He was physically and sexually abused, placed in one home, then another home, and then another home, until the Peterson family said, we want that little boy. And they brought him into their family. He was given security. He was given acceptance. He was given freedom. And Bob didn't realize that this loving Christian home was also an immensely wealthy home until he became older. And then Bob realized that he was the heir of considerable wealth because his father was a multi-millionaire. Because you and I have been adopted into the father's family, we are heirs. And Romans 8 says, join heirs with Christ because of this heirship that is ours. Because it's guaranteed by the promise of God. Because it's guaranteed by the elective purposes of God. Because it's guaranteed by the sealing work of God the Holy Spirit. You and I have a fortune that we would not be able to calculate throughout eternity. I can put it to you this way. Our Father owns an immeasurable estate. And we're heirs of all of it. We're heirs... Of All of it. Someday you and I will see and share in and savor the glory of the risen and reigning Christ and still more incredible. He the father loves us and exalts us as much as he does Jesus and makes us join heirs with him. God adopts us not on the basis of our record, not on the basis of our merit, He adopts us in spite of all of that. 1 John 3 says, Now we are the children of God, and it's not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when He, Christ, is revealed, we shall be like Him. Indeed, Romans 8 says, All of creation awaits the coming fullness of the sons and daughters of the living God. Right now and on occasion, we have the breezes of that coming glory fan us. And what a refreshing breeze it is. Sometimes the sounds of this coming glory burst upon our ears and did spirit is breathed into our hearts. Eye is not seen and ear is not heard all that the Father has planned for those who love him. But it's been revealed to us by his spirit. Almost seems like a fairy tale, really. It almost seems as if it's too good to be true. But I remember something Dr. Young said Sundays ago, weeks ago. If it seems too good to be true, then... It really is true in terms of the gospel. It's as if a reigning monarch adopts street urchins, strays and waifs and brings them into the palace and makes them princes and princesses. But it's not a fairy tale. It's the very truth of the gospel. It's the very truth and promise of this passage. J.I. Packer, whom I really enjoy reading, said that our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of the gospel, cannot be better than. And the truth of adoption, it is the highest privilege of the gospel. Some years ago, and with this I close, uh, Melinda and I had a family visit the church that I pastored in Martin, Tennessee, the Sheryls. And I repaid their visit on a Sunday morning with uh, a visit in their home. And by the time that they visited us and I met with them in their home, they were up in years. And Mr. Sheryl was in very poor health. He was an aging and infirm man. And all they could talk about, however, was their son, Joseph. Joseph was adopted. That Mr. Cheryl at one time was a small vacuum cleaner shop owner in St. Louis. And above that shop lived this single mother with this little toe-headed boy who liked to come down and hang out in Mr. Cheryl's vacuum cleaner shop. And one day, the mother approached Mr. Cheryl and said, You know, I don't have much of a life. I probably will never have much of a life. And that means that Joseph... Or his name wasn't Joseph at the time, but he's not going to have much of a life either. Would you and Mrs. Cheryl consider adopting him? They discussed it. They prayed about it. And they came back with a resounding, yes, we'll take this little boy into our family. And he became their only son. Throughout uh, his high school and college years, he was an excellent student, an excellent athlete. He was a wrestler. He was a triathlete. After um, High school, he went to the Marines. He eventually uh, became an officer in the Marines. When I met him, he was through college and was in medical school. In fact, he was in a neurosurgical residence in St. Louis, studying to be a neurosurgeon. Every time I would see them, they'd talk about Joseph. Finally, Mr. Sherrill's health took a striking dip, and he was nearing death. He had chronic respiratory problems, and they were worsening. And I was told that we've called Joseph, and He's coming. And Joseph came before his father passed away. Hospice had been called in. They had a hospital bed in their very small, modest apartment in Martin. And when I met Joseph, Mr. Sherrill had indeed passed away. And I went with Joseph and Mrs. Sherrill to the funeral home and they picked out a coffin. And Joseph had the posture of a Marine officer and he exuded the confidence and control of a neurosurgeon. And he was very dispassionate. And picking out the coffin, he said, this is what I want my dad to wear. This is how I want the tie tied. He even told the, the attendant, I want the tie tied here. I want the dimple in front. I want you to pull it this way and so on. And then we had the service. Mr. Cheryl was also a veteran. And so they had a full military funeral. And uh, there's nothing more forlorn, I think, than taps at a funeral. They folded the flag. They were playing taps. And the son stood at attention. Rigidly at attention, but his body convulsing. But his tears were hidden behind sunglasses. I went a few days later to visit Daisy, Mrs. Cheryl, in her home, and I asked about Joseph, and she said, "You know, when Joseph came, he crawled into bed with his dad, and he draped that bony, frail, near lifeless arm over his shoulder." And he put his head on his father's bony breast. And he said, Dad, you remember when I was a child, you'd rub my head at night when you tucked me in. Dad, would you rub my head? So this 80-something-year-old man rubbed his son's head. And Joseph lay on his breast for about 30 minutes. And then Joseph climbed out of the bed and went to a back bedroom, only two bedrooms, in the small apartment And Mrs. Cheryl said he wept convulsively for nearly an hour because Joseph knew that being adopted into this family had forever changed the direction of his life. By grace through faith in Christ, your being adopted into God's family has forever changed your life. Because of that today, you have acceptance with God Because of that today, you have incredible spiritual freedoms. Because of that today, you have family intimacy. Abba, Father. Because of that today, you have lasting security. You're the heir of a fortune that will never spoil, that will never fade away. It's incorruptible, reserved for you in heaven. May we not praise his name and live as his adopted children. To the praise of his glory. Fathers we bow before you in this closing moment of prayer. We pray that by your spirit you would seal these truths to the good and warmth of our souls. That we might enjoy and rejoice before you and all that is ours. By grace through faith in Christ alone. In whose name we pray. Amen.